ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, Ideas and Insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Trao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for this program. In this episode, I will focus on a topic that older folks, particularly educators, cannot stop talking about and one that the younger generation detests. I'm talking about the idea of learning for its own sake. Exploring the joys of reading, pursuing intellectual interest for the sheer pleasure of comprehending the verities of life, or living a quiet life of the mind does not appeal to most people. They are overwhelmed by economic insecurity and the fear of being left behind. Learning, therefore, has an instrumental value these days. We want to learn a skill or get a degree that will give us a steady income. Beyond this, education has little value. What most people do not seem to appreciate is that money, status, power, and glamour offer fleeting comforts and leave us with a gnawing sense of vacuum. There is something barren about achievement. We can get everything and yet remain unfulfilled. Several factors can blight our lives and leave us enervated. A low paying job, poor working conditions, dysfunctional relationships, exploitation by big business, hyperconsumerism, pathological individualism, ego focality, atomism, the list is endless. Together, they leave us floundering. We feel profoundly disempowered. We feel pushed around. Our dignity is violated. We are utterly lonely in a crowded world. Most of us accept these harsh realities as the reigning ethos of our times try to reconcile ourselves and live lives of quiet desperation. Some seek refuge in drinking, drugs, and distractions. Younger folks immerse themselves in solitary channel surfing and the compulsive use of social media. We are all dragooned by our spectacle-riddled culture. What we do not realize is that it need not be like this. Though beleaguered by forces beyond our control, we can still keep our dignity intact, relate to those around us as fellow human beings, 
celebrate life, and rediscover ourselves. This is the central theme of a new book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Its author, Dr. Zena Hitz, is a philosopher and tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. She has an unusual prescription for our everyday woes. In her book, Dr. Hitz says, we can enrich our lives by accessing the less known joys of learning for its own sake. She argues that intellectual pursuits, untrammeled by mundane considerations, can help us reclaim our dignity, attain communion with fellow human beings, and find meaning in our lives. According to Dr. Hitz, the dispassionate quest for scholarship has several intangible benefits. Learning, she says, fosters the capacity to reflect and understand. It unites people in their search for knowledge, truth, beauty, awareness, and excellence. As the 17th century French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal said, intellectual life confers the dignity of thought. It bestows the dignity of facing the world as it is. Knowledge that outstrips the desire for social advancement, popular approval, and the lure of power and status imparts the priceless ability to acknowledge our human imperfections. Dr. Hitz says that what corrupts learning is the love of money and the desire for social success. To counter this, she encourages her readers to go beyond impulses, desires, quotidian concerns, and embrace the ascetic solitude of intellectual life. Dr. Hitz suggests we should abandon the love of spectacle and life at the surfaces. Instead, she says, we must embrace the virtue of seriousness. This involves transcending the traditional boundaries of knowledge that universities purvey. Intellectual life should cultivate a space of retreat, a place of escape where real reflection takes place. This inner world, Dr. Hitz Evers, is not subject to poverty's power to diminish. It is a source of insight and understanding. It is the wellspring of dignity ordinarily denied by our stifling circumstances. This life of quiet contemplation is far removed from formal learning an enterprise Dr. Hitz dismisses as merely absorbing correct opinions. Her vision of learning is capacious and has an ethereal quality. Dr. Hitz maintains that unremitting and disinterested striving for knowledge can emancipate us from the indignities of everyday life. She thus provides a roadmap for reclaiming a humanity that most people 
overlook. Though insightful, Dr. Hitz's thesis raises several questions. What does being lost in thought entail? How can we pursue learning for its own sake, given the predatory context in which we live? Can we all embrace a life of asceticism? Are her prescriptions for reinstating our dignity practical? Dr. Hitz joins me now to discuss these issues. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Hitz. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And thank you so much for that introduction. You're welcome. Let's begin with your intellectual journey and I want to ask what it was like spending 17 years in education, first as a student, then as a professor, and then you were clearly not happy with your situation. You wanted to find a vocation, and you became Catholic. You joined the Catholic Church. So you have had an interesting sojourn. How does that relate to your prescription for pursuing scholarship for its own sake? So I, the book really comes directly out of my personal experience. Um, I, so I grew up in a family of amateur bookworms. They weren't professional academics, they weren't professors, they weren't critics or journalists but they like to read and to talk about things and to get into pointless arguments. And so it was natural for me to go to a liberal arts college, like the one, in fact, the same one that I teach at now, St. John's in Annapolis. And that really nurtured this sense of ideas as connected to life, ideas as, and reflection as a part of every life, um, as something that belonged to everyone. Uh, and then I went to uh, graduate school uh, in classics and in philosophy. So I'm, I'm trained in classical philosophy and became a professor. And that changed something about my attitude to intellectual life. So I, um, I became, I won't say I became, I was always preoccupied with uh, competition and status. And my, the environment I was in exploited that is how I would put it. So I had, I think we all have it in us to, uh, to seek to win contests, to dominate others, to, uh, to just rise to the top of whatever status ladder we have in front of us if we can. So that was how, what intellectual life got uh, sent into for me. And uh, it didn't, it, at first it was, there was nothing felt wrong. It was all very enjoyable. In fact, for a certain time, I think it worked pretty well. But as I became a professor, things started to deteriorate. And part of what was wrong was in myself. That is, I had um, subjugated my love of thinking and reflecting and reading to my professional concerns and to my status concerns. And I couldn't untangle it. There was the, and there was a long period when I knew that something, I knew that that was wrong, but I couldn't figure out how to do anything about it. Uh, so that was happening on the one side. On the other, 
uh, I was teaching uh, at uh, large public universities, which in a way are wonderful because everyone goes to a large public university. So you, you never know who's going to come to your classroom. All kinds of people come. But on the other hand, it was too large to do the kind of teaching that I thought was really worthwhile. Uh, I ended up just digesting my knowledge and spitting it out and expecting the students to regurgitate it back to me. And that didn't seem like real teaching. So I was already Catholic by that point. I left, I joined a monastery for three years. And uh, from there in this kind of space of real retreat and poverty and uh, in a, a very simple community, that was how I started to see how how things had really gone wrong and started to become freed from this, the kinds of burdens that I've been under before. So that's where the book comes from. It comes from this 17 year long experience of um, trying intellectual life in one mode or another and really making an attempt to connect it to my life. Interesting. You say in your book that the love of learning opens up dimensions of our uh, humanity that are generally hidden from us. What dimensions of humanity, humanity do you have in mind? Well, uh, it's different. It's, it, it depends on what exactly kind of intellectual work you're doing. So if you pick up a, a, a great novel, you step into the lives of the characters, and you can become anyone, anywhere, and so in that obvious sense, you're opening up dimension of yourself that you didn't know were there. Uh, you're, you know, you're reading about Hamlet or you're reading about the life of Frederick Douglass and you are inside that person's world. Now, that's one way, but there's another way, which is that your, um, your sense of certainty, the things that make you comfortable, uh, the things that, um, are the things in our lives which are driven by insecurity and panic and fear drop away for a time and we are just in whatever it is that we're thinking about. So right now I'm teaching a book on uh, of ancient geometric treatise on conic sections. Now when I'm in the middle of those conic sections, I'm not thinking about um, you know, appearing on TV or my next book or what I'm going to post on Twitter or what my friends think of me or whether I'm going to get promoted. I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm just in the conic sections. And I, if I had never been encountered that kind of learning, I would never have known that was possible. Interesting. You talk in your book about a French film, The Hedgehog, produced in 2009 to illustrate an important point. You say that the love of learning is innate in all of us and that when we pursue learning for its own sake it gives us a sense of dignity and communion with fellow human beings what does this mean and what's the connection between learning and dignity in the film, which I, I recommend, it's apparently difficult to find on streaming services, but if you have a DVD player, one of those old spinning disc players, you can still find it. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough to see it in the theater when it came out. The main character is the concierge in an um, upscale French apartment building. Mm -hmm. A concierge is like a building supervisor. 
So she looks after the mail. She orders work to be done on the house. She takes requests from the tenants and the residents. She does cleaning. So it's a, it's a low status job. And she is looked down on by the upper class residents of the building. She's not really seen as a full human being. And she, in a way, plays along. She puts out a sort of cranky, stereotypical front to the residents. But she has a secret life that's displayed in the film. She has a room behind her kitchen that's stuffed with books. And she goes back there, and it's a space of retreat for her. She reads philosophy and history and literature and so on. So through the film, you see that this woman who in other respects is not your standard Hollywood star. She's middle-aged, she's a little overweight, uh, she's uh, not successful, she's not rich. Uh, she has something that the other residents of the building don't have. She has an inner life. And the film goes through the friendships that she makes with uh, the people in the building that are a bit alienated from upper-class French life. So that's the way in which it's also a ground of communion or connection with others. In your book, you say that uh, what's valuable for us ultimately depends on how we see ourselves and what values we cherish in the final analysis. How do you see a human being and the ultimate values that people should pursue? Well, I want to be careful here because we're all mixed. We all have a lot of motivations and different desires for different things. And what we cherish, what we hold most valuable, is not entirely up to us. Uh, in my tradition, in the Catholic tradition, Cherishing the most important things is a gift of grace. It's not something that you can force yourself to do. But I think we can be helped along in uh, seeing our values and seeing who we really are as human beings um, by reading things that help us to see what's wrong with our lives. That is, you mentioned in your introduction the sense of emptiness, the sense of discontent, the sense of the vacuum, I think that's very familiar to, to virtually everyone. And I think if you look hard at that in yourself, you see that there's something off about one's values. You're putting your values, you're, you're dedicating your life to something which is not fulfilling to you. It's not satisfying for you. And you need to find what that thing is. So what I suggest in the book is what may look narrow, but I think is meant to be very capacious and allowing for all different kinds of people. What I suggest is that who you are is, is not primarily someone who has a social status, not primarily someone who has an income, not primarily someone who is good looking or bad looking or uh, abled or disabled. That's not what you are as a human being. What you are is someone who can know and who can love. Uh, and the intellectual life is a way of cultivating both of those things. It cultivates our capacity to know because it opens up the world to us, opens up reality to us. 
and it cultivates our capacity to love by connecting us with others, both living and dead. So that's, that's my vision of what a human being is, someone who knows and loves and who cherishes the most important things. And I think the most important things are, are more alike than we tend to think they are for, for most of us. Let's uh, now so turn I, to another important point you make in the book, and this concerns the use of leisure. You say leisure is not meant just for recreation. You cite Aristotle and say that, as Aristotle mentioned, recreation is not the purpose of leisure. Leisure is meant to be used for contemplation, for seeing the world as it is. Now, this point is well taken, but you also acknowledge in your book that most of us are stuck in wage slavery, appalling working conditions, exploitative forms of labor, particularly in the context of the platform economy. We've come to the point where leisure is a luxury for a lot of folks. What suggestion do you have for them? How can they lead a contemplative life? So I want to make to make a, a distinction here. I think that there, in our current culture, American culture, mm -hmm. there's two extremes. There are people who, so the problem that the discussion of leisure is meant to help us with is working for the sake of work. So you work in order to make money, in order to preserve your health, in order to do more work. And there's never any culminating end which all of your work is for, whether that's the contemplative life, bird watching, spending time with your family, going outside in nature, whatever it is, you don't have, that's not your focus. You do that just to relax in order to do more work. And I, I think that doesn't make sense. It's incoherent and it makes us miserable. Now, some people, I think uh, quite a lot of people in our culture have the choice to work less, and they don't. So that's one audience that I'm directing myself to, are people who um, choose to devote their lives to work, but who really have the choice to do differently. So those cases are a bit easier, I think, as far as your question is concerned. Then there are people who have no choice. In order to survive, in order to support their families, in order to keep a roof over their head, they have to work all the time. And part of what I want to say is that's, that's, there's something wrong here. Uh, that's not a humane way to live. And as a community, as a society, whether, it's, whether you're a, the head of a company or whether you're a legislator, you have to see in your community that these people need enough uh, support that they can live full human lives and not just be wage slaves, as you put it. So that's one thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say is that my experience of uh, working people uh, and also my experience of, of what, you can, what you see when you um, investigate the world and how things really are is that people find all kinds of ways. They're very resourceful 
in finding leisure. And what they need is encouragement to know that it's worth it. Um, it's worth it, even if all you can do is look at the sky on the way to work or have a moment to yourself on the subway. Um, that's Those moments are precious. They're worth valuing. Whatever you can do in them is worthwhile. You're, it, no one can take away your dignity as a human being. Uh, and you can find it for yourself in those moments. But that's not to take away the obligation of anyone who has any authority in these matters to ensure that labor conditions are better than they are so that people can live full human lives. That should be a basic condition for a flourishing society is not to have work destroy people's lives. That point uh, is true, but then the fact remains that we are far away from attaining that ideal. And uh, in the interim, we have reduced people literally to subhuman conditions and leave them with no uh, opportunity to contemplate or even access the basic pleasures of life, life like uh, you know, having enough food to eat, security, and so on. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that the the movements which uh, really inspired quite a lot of the book were uh, grassroots intellectual movements, self-education movements, self-help movements that came out of the 19th and early 20th century when, like now, they had very, very serious problems with labor. Uh, they had, they, there was all kinds of work that was dramatically inhumane. And these workers formed communities among, amongst one another. They, they fought for their rights um, and they also taught one another. Uh, so I agree that things right now are bad, but they have been better in the past. Even within living memory, they've been better. And I think we need to keep that in mind and try to focus on what's possible in our own communities to make them better in this respect. But I, I think you, it, it matters, it matters it seems to me to be able to say, one of the things that's wrong with our current culture is that people have to work to the point where they have no way to live full human lives. I think that matters. And I'm, I would never judge anyone who couldn't, uh, find some source of contemplation because they were too oppressed by their circumstances. But I would still know that we, we, it's not enough just to have, here's one way of putting it. It's not enough just to move up the ladder so that you can become not just a delivery worker, but the tech worker who works for the company. And you're working just as much as the person lower down the ladder. Now you have the freedom not to, um, but it goes all the way up. Our culture of overwork goes from the top to the bottom. Right. And now, we need we need a robust sense of human ideals uh, in order to get ourselves out of this, I think. On a related note, you reject the notion that real and genuine intellectual work is possible only for a small elite. You argue that all of us can access learning and uh, take to meaningful ways of educating ourselves. Well, that is a noble idea, 
But isn't it also true that there are a lot of people among us who are devoted to lives of frivolity, titillation, and fun? What do you think? I think there are some people who have lives devoted to frivolity. I, I don't like to use the word fun in that context because I'm, I'm actually pro-fun. But I, I mean, <laughs> I meant mindless fun. Yeah, yeah, I am against frivolity. Uh, so I think that's true. There's there's a certain, I would call it decadence, um, a lot of disposable income being spent on things that aren't important, uh, that aren't even really fulfilling for the people involved. Uh, so I think there is a certain lack of seriousness in, um, in especially in, I think, the middle middle and upper classes uh, a sense that it's enough to be entertained you provide um, two sets of examples in your book that uh, were very interesting to me on the one hand you talk about the intense intellectual uh, quest of people like uh, Albert Einstein uh, Malcolm X uh, Andre Weil the mathematician uh, Antonio Gramsci, the political philosopher from Italy, and uh, so on. And on the other, you talk about a person like Eddie Baker, who was an ordinary worker, and he too uh, devoted a great deal of time pursuing his passions, intellectual work. Now, what's the general idea you're trying to drive at? What do you think we can learn from these two sets of people? Well, the the point is really of the book is that intellectual life is for everyone. Um, one of the things I say towards the end of the book is the reason why most of the examples I have are famous people is because those are the people that you can find out about in libraries. Now, since the book has come out, I hear from people all the time who had an uncle who was a mechanic who uh, had memorized 10 volumes of poetry or they had an aunt who, who taught herself languages. Uh, there are lots of real ordinary people with very, very rich intellectual lives. And I wanted to try to, to remind those of us who are professional intellectuals like myself that those people exist and to encourage those people out there who think that maybe what they're doing isn't the real thing. Because I think it is definitely the real thing. There's other examples, I keep coming up with them. So Zora Neale Hurston, the novelist, she found a copy of Milton, that's the English poet, in a garbage heap. And she was working a menial job at the time. And in her breaks from work, she would just read very slowly through this book, through Milton. Uh, this is something which is a human possibility for us. And it's maybe not, as you're pressuring me before, it's maybe not available in every single set of circumstances, but it's much more widely available than we think it is. And it's, it's part of what gives meaning to what professionals like myself do. That is, if, if only a few people did it, if only a few people really thought about things and really confronted reality and uh, did mathematics and read great novels, I don't think it would really mean very much. If it's not really a fully human thing, that's in some way available for everyone, enlightened everyone, then I think it, it really wouldn't be that great. Uh, that's part of my point too. Right. 
And you cite uh, Jonathan Rose's uh, book, The Intellectual Life of the British uh, Working Class, published in 2001, to buttress the point you just now made. And there is a lot of merit in that argument. Uh, you also discuss uh, the Jewish uh, thinker, Primo Levi, and uh, you mention the French political philosopher, Yves Simon. And you say that they were wedded to a life of asceticism. I get the point that in order to pursue intellectual interests with any degree of seriousness, one must emancipate oneself from the stranglehold of everyday desires and so on. But asceticism is going a bit too far, is it not? Can we all become hermits, do you think? No, I don't think we should all become hermits. Uh, there are two things going on, I think. I'm making two different points with those examples. Uh -huh. one, one is that even in the worst circumstances, mm -hmm. so uh, Primo Levi was a, a Jewish man living in Italy under Mussolini's fascism. And as he describes it, everything he's told on the radio is a lie. So he's living in this world swimming in lies. How does he keep his sense of sanity? How does he keep his dignity? It's by doing chemistry, which has a, a concreteness and a reality to it that can't be faked. So the same with Yves Simon. This is a person who suffered a great deal in the conflicts of the, of the Second World War. He found his dignity in thinking for himself, despite all the pressure he was under. And that's true for the prisoners also, who, who the, Malcolm X and, and the other prisoners, Andre Vey, now, so that's one thing is that it gives you a dignity even the even in the worst circumstances. But the other is to say that it's not a coincidence that these well-known intellectuals underwent this kind of suffering. Now, all of the examples, you wouldn't really call them ascetic because they don't choose their suffering. Their suffering's given to them. It's given to them by their totalitarian government it's given to them by the fact that they're imprisoned. Um, it's given to them by their poverty. So for many of us, we don't have to be ascetical. We just have to see that our sufferings are also ways that there can be a kind of opportunity in suffering. Right, but you also mentioned, forgive me, uh, you yeah. also mentioned uh, two examples. Uh, the first one is Simone Weil, the philosopher. And the second one is Catherine Doherty, the spiritual writer. Both of them voluntarily embraced uh, extreme forms of poverty only to regret their choice later. You see? Well, uh, I don't know. Catherine Doherty never regretted her choice of poverty. Simone Weil, I think we can say, went too far she would starve herself you know this is that that's not i don't want to i don't encourage anyone to starve themselves but i do think that if you if you notice how full of distraction our life is uh how easy it is to be drawn away by things that don't matter that's the kind of asceticism that i'm talking about right it's it's separating yourself from things that are distracting that are taking you away from what really matters so for instance, uh, in my own life, 
for me to really fully embrace my intellectual life as as I was meant to accept it as an authentic part of who I am, I had to give up for a time my fancy career as a professional philosopher. That was a sacrifice. That was a piece of asceticism. I did it by my own choice. Uh, I lost my career. I lost my income. Uh, I didn't see my friends. Didn't see much of my family. I lived in a strange place. You know, I lived I wore donated clothes and so on. But that's that created space for me to really reflect and think about who I was. Now I didn't, I didn't uh, starve myself. I didn't live out in the cold. But I got rid of what was superfluous. I focused on what I really needed. And that allowed me to see my life more clearly and see what I really cared about uh, and see how obsessed I had been, how obsessed I still am with things which, which just aren't important and which take away from the things that really do matter. Because our attention is finite. We only have so much attention to give to so many things over so many days and years. And so we have to make choices. And that, that involves sacrifice. And I call that asceticism. Now, while talking about uh, the connection between dignity and adversity, you invoke the example of uh, Irina Ratushinskaya, the Soviet dissident uh, poet who was sent to a labor camp. She apparently inscribed her poetry on, uh, on soap and then memorized the poems and published them later. That's an extraordinary example I, I found in your book. What do you think is the connection between dignity and adversity? Does one have to go through adversity in order to appreciate dignity? I don't think so. Uh, I, not Well, look, we all go through adversity. There's, there's no life that doesn't have suffering in it. But I think there's lessons for, again, people, on, people on the different, in the different parts of our society for, for wealthy people, I think we really, pe pe you know, people who are like myself or richer, middle class people and up, you really pretend to yourself that you can avoid every kind of suffering and every kind of deprivation. And that causes an anxiety that drives all of your workaholism and all of your little petty things that you, pers that you spend tons of time on, all of your frivolities. It's all dedicated to this idea that every bit of pain and every bit of suffering is a disaster. Um, so for people like that, people from my class and higher classes, you have to realize that your dignity is being compromised in that and that sacrificing some of the, the glitz and the glitter and the superfluities gets down to what you really are, what really matters about you. Because it's not what what makes you a human being. What gives you dignity is not being free from suffering. Um, what gives you dignity is who you are when you're suffering, um, despite your suffering. So right. I think the examples are are meant to show people who haven't maybe taken on their suffering their dignity, and also so that people who are living in circumstances which are really uh, diminished that they can see themselves in these characters and say, this, that is me. I, I, I am not the, um, my dignity is not something that someone can take away from me. Right. It's not something my boss can take away. It's not something my government can take away. 
it belongs to me and these these stories illustrate that talking about the impediments to the love of uh, learning you say that we are under a fog of wishful thinking we tend to equate education with concrete benefits and as an antidote to the illusions that or misconceptions that we have about education you offer two solutions you talk about living a mindful life of self examination and you bring up the example of saint augustine and you also talk about the importance of escaping the fog of uh, uh, wishful thinking through art and in this context you talk about elena ferrante's neapolitan novels could you tell us more about these two points yes so the wishful thinking that i'm concerned about in education is that somehow we can have everything so we can pursue social advancement material advancement and also become bigger better broader minded people who are liberally educated and we that's a it's a it's a pretense which it's not necessarily true that you can't do both of these things but as a point of fact you have to make choices in life and in many circumstances especially if you're say a, a leader of an educational institution you have to decide what's going to come first are you a job training organization which is worthwhile or are you a liberal arts organization which is also worthwhile but in a different way and for a different reason now i think the world needs both we need both job training and we need liberal arts education but we can't pretend they're the same thing so that's the wishful thinking i'm concerned about now um someone like augustine he he too pretends he can have everything so he wants to be a philosopher and he wants to be a successful highly placed roman official um who has some some importance in the in the empire uh and he can't have all those things the the philosophy that he's doing the the personal inquiry that he's undergoing which culminates in his conversion to christianity it undermines his commitment to uh the ideals of the roman society that he lives in he can't love status anymore he can't just marry some random woman because she's wealthy he can't live like that if he's really going to be a christian so right. the whole thing comes apart when he converts and he has to live in the reality which is that his primary commitment is christianity uh and it turns out that he it it's continual source of sacrifice for him so it's not just once in the confessions but throughout his life he because of that initial commitment it's a bit like the story of Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life you know he just keeps sacrificing because of what he cares most about so now the elena fronte thing is a bit different mm -hmm. it's but it is it has a similar structure in that if what you 
you know, um, Elena Greco, who's the, the protagonist, she, she thinks she's trying to escape from this violent, poor neighborhood that she grew up in in Naples. And so she learns all the right words and learns all the right moves and makes her way up the ladder. But she wants to be an artist. She wants to be a novelist. She wants to get down to the bottom of what it means to be a human being and to articulate some piece of experience in a way that no one has before. And that's not compatible with just being a sort of a social climber and a parrot. She has to reach into a different part of herself. Now, it's a bit different because I think the sense of sacrifice is not quite the same. Uh, but there's still a, there's a tension between the, the pressures that push us towards success and the pressures which uh, we need to we need to respond to if we want to live authentically and do our best work. In the course of your book, you invoke St. Augustine's uh, idea of a life of spectacle and living on the surface. And you say that St. Augustine was of the view that sometimes the pursuit of learning itself could become a life of spectacle. So one has to be mindful. How does one understand this idea and uh, what might we be able to do to get away from it? Well, so I think that, well, let me say first what, I, what, the, what the view is and then I'll, then I'll try to explain its relevance to contemporary life. So there's something in us for Augustine that wants to just watch things happen. It's a bit like an intellectual desire, but it doesn't really result in learning. So if you think about rubbernecking at a traffic accident, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to look. You go by the accident, you have to look. But is that really a desire to learn? Probably not, because you know what you're going to see. Um, and you'd want to keep looking, even if you'd seen it before. So I think that, that there is a desire in us just to kind of watch things go. Um, Augustine's example is his friend, Alepius, who loves to watch the gladiators. You know, so there's the spectacle in ancient Rome where people kill each other for sport. Mm -hmm. And he's fascinated. He can't stop watching it. Uh, or, you know, watching a spider kill a fly. Uh, and what interests Augustine, too, is that these things are bad. They're not... It's not as if you're fascinated by something beautiful or good. You're fascinated by something ugly and horrible. That's a sign that something is off. So uh, you're not learning and you're, you're looking at things which aren't drawing you any place good. So for us these days, I think that's really clearest on social media. We're right. fascinated by, by sordid news, by scandals, by terrible things happening, by glimpses into other people's personal lives. We're fascinated by it, but we're not learning anything. It's a source of distraction it dissipates our attention. It takes us away from things that matter. Which brings me so. to an important question. St. Augustine argues that the antidote to a life of spectacle is a life of seriousness. What does a life of seriousness look like? What does it entail? Now, 
that was something that surprised me a bit in the book. I didn't know when I started that I was going to find out something about something called the virtue of seriousness. But if you think about the love of spectacle and what that involves and think about what a person who, if you know anyone, who doesn't have any interest in that kind of thing is like, they're usually someone who likes to get to the bottom of things. They want to learn. They want to see what's universal in a particular case. They want to, you know, get to the particular that's being hidden by the general claim. And they, they want to connect their learning to their life. So instead of this kind of the distance that you have with a spectacle where it's not, it's not happening to you. It's not your life. It's the car accident by the side of the road. It's the, it's the advice column on Reddit. It's the, the terrible news story. That's all at a distance from you. Whereas being serious involves looking at the reality that you're living in and, and trying to figure out what to do about it. That's serious. And that also involves the reality about who you are as a person, uh, acknowledging that reality and, and what you're going to do about it. And that's, that's just not compatible with, it's compatible with sometimes getting distracted. We're just human beings, but it's not compatible with really devoting yourself to the love of spectacles. And I think we're often in danger of that these days of just, just devoting ourselves to distraction and forgetting that what we really need to do is to get real, look at what's around us and respond. To pick up from where you left just now, someone reading your book might say, well, this is all fine. Learning for its own sake is good for the soul. It gives me dignity, communion, happiness, and so on. But I live in a world driven by suffering, pain, privation, and so on, a world that is trying to be fixed. What good is intellectual life when what we need now is social action? How would you respond? I think that part of what I would say is it's very easy in our current environment for uh, for concerns about justice to become a kind of spectacle, to become a kind of a pretense, to be a way of imagining ourselves that doesn't have any real bite. So it's very important. So I, I'm a big fan of justice, honestly, despite my, my arguing against it in some sense in my book, because I want to keep it separate from intellectual life. But you, in order to really respond to the suffering world, you need to be realistic about what your reality is. You need practice and seeing reality. What's possible, what's not possible, what's gonna work, what isn't gonna work. I think a lot of what you're seeing in the, in the news and in the public sphere is uh, people using justice as, as a spectacle all the time. And you were also seeing the results, which is that nothing ever seems to happen. You know, you have these moments of outrage, like this moment with George Floyd a couple of years ago, justified outrage, a sense that justice must be done. And where does it all end up a few years later? It's not obvious it's done anything. And that's because it's been reduced to a spectacle. Uh, and we need, to, we, we need to be aware that that's, in a way, the most natural path these days 
for our love of justice is to is to dissipate it into spectacles. And what we really need to do is to, in a disciplined way, think about what's real. And intellectual life is one really great way to prepare yourself for that. So I would never say that no one should pursue justice. Of course they should. We need people to, desperately. But you need to know, how, have a sense of what the world is that you're living in and have a sense of how to distinguish something fake from something real and something that seems like it might be possible from something that really is impossible. And that intellectual training is a, is a good way to do that. It's probably not the only way, but it's a good way. We are almost out of time, Dr. Hitz. Let me conclude by asking you one last question. In your book, you bemoan the transition from learning for its own sake to learning for social utility. And you also have a grim view of the role universities are playing in fostering genuine love of learning. You say universities are all about ensuring that people absorb the right opinions. And that point is indeed true. The issue, however, is do you see a role for universities in fostering the love of learning for its own sake, the sort of thing you're talking about in your book? If so, what might that be? So I think universities can take a role in learning for its own sake. I think they, they used to do better at it in, even when I was younger, not so long ago. So I, I think that they can. Um, I don't know if they will. So for them to do so would take some reform and quite a lot of interestingly enough I think there's really one issue that kind of drives everything and I think every teacher will recognize what I'm saying it's class size if the reason why people teach opinions is because their classes are too big to teach habits of mind and habits of thinking because to teach those things you need to have a personal connection with the people that you're teaching they're not just content you can pass on and little bullet points and you know little sound bites that you're supposed to memorize and then spit back out again that's that's not learning so it's it's inevitable given the the material conditions of learning which is larger and larger class sizes more and more distance between the teachers and the students it's inevitable that you're going to have what i call opinionization that is everything becomes about opinions so you're because saying you're, that yeah because because you don't have any you don't have, what else are you going to do I have a class of 200 people. What am I supposed to teach them? I'm going to teach them some opinions. Uh, I'm not going to be able to pass on those habits of mind of, of self-examination and, and careful reading and thinking and so on. I need a small class to do that. So that's what the universities need to do. If they really want to turn, their, turn around and start cold vagueness again, they need, to re they need to create more contact between teachers and students. As a professor, I cannot but agree with you wholeheartedly Thank you, Professor Hates, for joining us today. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Goodbye. Thank you so much for reading so carefully. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we will discuss The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well, a new book by eminent philosopher Dr. Julian Baghini, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. In his book, Dr. Baghini examines the life and ideas of David Hume 
the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Hume lived a full life that blended reason and passion. Both through his philosophy and his personal life, Hume epitomized the art of living well. Dr. Baghini explains the lessons we can draw from the life and teachings of this great thinker. Join us next week for an exciting discussion with Dr. Julian Baghini. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.